notes? Yeah? Cool, great. Um, uh, we're going to be looking over the next three weeks at uh, one of Paul's lesser known letters, his letter to Titus, um, and it's the second shortest of Paul's letters. And we're going to be doing that over the next three weeks. So let me lead in prayer so that we will listen well and God will speak to us. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks. Uh, We pray that you will be speaking to us. And Father, that we won't be just hearing with our ears, but Father, our lives will be ready to change. Father, work in us, speak to us, change us. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the things is, when when we get to any part of the Bible, it's always important to read it in context. Uh, Context is one of the key things uh, in in any understanding of any part of text. Um, And and I remember particularly when I was at university, uh, there was this advertisement on TV. uh, And I remember seeing the camera zoom in, and there was this terrified woman sitting in the car with a baby in her arms, and looking with, with these tears that you can just uh, eyes that you can just see fear in her eyes, uh, and it was terrible. And, and what happened was that the camera then zoomed round from her perspective, and what she saw was a woman outside the car with a hoodie, sort of with his hand around his face like that, and bashing in to that window, the side window. And, and in your mind, you're going through, oh no, kidnapping, rape, carjacking, something horrible is just about to happen. But then the camera actually started panning back. And what you saw was that the front of the car, the, the, the engine, was on fire. And the boot was also on fire. And what this guy was trying to do was break into the car to rescue this woman and child, not to take her away and kidnap her. Context is actually really important. And so one of the first things I want to do is to start off by talking about the context of the book of Titus. Um, there are two sorts of contexts that we need to look at. First thing is a historical context. Uh, last year, in our book of the year, was the book of Acts. And hopefully you didn't read anything about Titus and Crete in the book of Acts because it wasn't there. Um, that is, the, the work on Crete, the work with Titus, actually happened after the book of Acts. So after Paul was imprisoned at the end of the book of Titus, uh, there was a time when he and his friend Timothy visited Crete and started planting churches there. It was a successful mission. Paul actually left Titus on Crete went off and actually wrote this letter somewhere else, probably, maybe, um, uh, at um, uh, one of the other places like Macedonia or Ephesus, back to Titus. That's one sort of context that we can look at. But another, I I think, more important context in this situation is finding a biblical context, a thematic context. That is, the book of Titus in the Bible actually belongs with the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, We call these three books these three letters, actually the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. Now, don't ask me why they call them the pastoral epistles. I think all parts of the New Testament is pastoral. But somehow, uh, this is called the pastoral epistles. And it focuses particularly on the time that's going to happen after Paul would pass away. So it's written towards the end of the apostolic age, sort of around the 60s, 66 onwards, in that time when, oh my goodness, the original apostles will, will pass away. And then the next generation will actually take up the baton. And the question it really answers is, how do we know, or how can we be sure, that the Christianity which follows the apostles is going to be the same as the Christianity at the time of the apostles? What do you need to do to keep certainty of that? Now, I think you can go to all parts of the Bible, all parts of the New Testament to see that. But particularly, these three letters, the pastoral epistles, 
1, 2 Timothy and also Titus addresses this question. And it's a good place to, to look at it. Why do I say that? Because, you know, there are alternatives, uh, which has actually produced different versions of Christianity. Uh, so, for example, uh, some people think that the tie, the, the way that you get uh, uh, continuity between the original apostles and what we have today is what they call apostolic secession. We, we, we want to have the same thing as the apostles. We want to have the same sort of Christianity as the apostles. But the way that these people say that you have it is because of a historical link. So what happens is that you have a bishop who's consecrated by a bishop, who's consecrated by a bishop, who's consecrated by a bishop, and you can say that as many times as you want, who's consecrated by an apostle. The way that you get apostolic Christianity is the historical link between the bishop and the apostles. And if you haven't got a bishop with that link, then you can't have genuine Christianity. Or some other churches think, no, no, the way that you tie in original Christianity with the Christianity that we have now is by structures. So if we can have apostolic structures and, and forms of government which is the same as what they had, that's how you guarantee genuine Christianity. Other churches, other groups, the Christians might say, no, no, it's the way that you baptise people. So if we have the baptism today, which is the same as the baptism of the original Christians, well, that's how you guarantee apostolic Christianity. Of course, other people would say that, no, the link with apostolic Christianity, the Christianity of the day of Paul and them, lies in the power of the Holy Spirit. So apostolic Christianity, fully authentic Christianity, actually appears in our days when you see the work of the Holy Spirit worked out in uh, gifts of power and, and healing and all that sort of stuff. Now, it's an important question. How do you guarantee Christianity? Now, uh, if we had more time, I was going to get everybody to play a game of Chinese whispers, right? And, and you know, it, it's just disastrous. Uh, you've played it before. How the message that starts and the message that finishes is completely different. So how do you guarantee it? Is it by bishops? Is it by church structures? Is it, what is it? If we want to answer this important question, then the pastoral epistles, and especially a place like Titus, is a really important place to go and you'll notice that the first thing that Paul actually instructs Titus to do is actually in verse 5, which is printed out there for you. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. See, Titus had two jobs. One was a straightening out job, a teaching job, to make sure things were okay. And you see that all over the place. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can click on, and you know that verse 13, Paul actually says, the test this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. If you turn over the page or to the next chapter in, in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 15, these then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do whatever is good. Or in chapter 3, verse 10, warn a divisive person. That is, Titus is to encourage, is to rebuke, is to warn, is to straighten out all the things that's going on. But more than that, he had another task, and that was to establish elders. Establish elders. And it says interesting things about elders in verses 6 to, to, to 8. Uh, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now we're just going to spend a little bit of time 
thinking about this idea of eldership and elders. And one of the issues that we need to, to talk about is, is this whole translation business, right? Um, one of the problems is that what we have in the original is written in Greek, and we've had to translate it into English. And you always have problems when you translate things from one language to another. So my name is Michael Kwan, right? Kwan is actually a Chinese name, particularly Cantonese, right? Kwan is how you say it. Don't get it wrong. It's not Kwan, it's not Kwan, okay? Kwan. Uh, and, and that's a transliteration. That, it just it sounds the same. And, you know, Cantonese is dumb, right? It, it's just got different tones. So if you say it wrong, you actually get different words. Like, if, instead of saying Kwan, you say Kwan. That means a stick. <laughs> that doesn't work for me, right? Guan is, is what my name is. Or if you say guan instead of guan, it means to boil, right? That's wrong. <laughs> or if you say guan instead of guan, it means a soldier. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's transliteration. And you get problems with transliteration, but you know, we get the gist. Michael Kwan, well, I'll answer to that. Even Kwan or Kwan, but that's another story. But there's actually a meaning. Another way that you can go from one language to the next is actually instead of doing transliteration, you can do a, a translation. So, for example, the name Guan actually means to close. Dumb sort of but it just means to close. And you can use it in compound words, which means relationship. Well, the same thing has gone on in our words that we read in this passage. But the first word we have is the word elder there in verse 5. The original word is actually the word presbyteros. And, and if you want to use a transliteration, you, you get words like presbytery or presbyterian. And through high German, uh, the word has been corrupted into a word priest. But the actual translation, instead of transliteration, is what we have there in our New International Version translation, or most translations of the Bible. The word is actually elder. Uh, the funny thing is, that word, in verse 5, the presbyteros, priest's elder word, is used synonymously with another word in verse 7, the episkopos, or the overseer, as it translated. But transliterated, we get words like the Episcopal, Episcopalian Church, Episcopal Church. And if you do some fancy footwork and get rid of a few letters and, and change a few, we actually get the word bishop. Okay. You get rid of the E, right? you get rid of the Os, you change the P to a B, you change the K to a F. Bishop, huh? Truly, it's true. Um, but see, that, that's where we get the word bishop from. The Episcopal Church is a church with the bishops. And that's transliteration, but the, the overseer is the actual translation. And, then, and it's used synonymously. That is, we have an overseer who's an elder, we have a bishop who's the priest, is the way it's done. And hidden in the NIV, which isn't translated really well, is another word, the word oikonomos, spoken with an Australian accent. Um, but the transliteration is the word economy. Our great faculty of economics here at Sydney University gets its name from this word. It just means a household manager, a steward, to look after the house well. And the problem is these words are mixed up in the transliteration and translation to do all sorts of harm, I think. So, for example, we have a word priest, oh, whoops, that, um, that's taken from the Old Testament as one who serves in front of an altar, who offers sacrifices, and we translate that word as priest. But somehow, some people have equated the translation of priest in the Old Testament with the transliteration of the word elder in the New Testament. The problem is, we don't actually have any New Testament elders 
who offer sacrifices at the temple or at the altar. We just don't do that. Because we know as Christians on this side of the cross in the New Testament that Jesus has been the perfect sacrifice. Elders don't do that. Nowhere in the New Testament is a Christian minister to offer sacrifices on an altar. But part of the problem is that we can get all those words confused. But chief in their task is to do two things. Is to teach, is to hold firmly to trustworthy teaching. But it's more than that. But to do that, but it's also about the character. Now, on your outlines, I've tried to divide up the character bit in the next little section into two sort of axes. They're behavioural ones, and they're doctrinal ones, and they're positive ones, and they're negative ones. Now, the great thing about this series is that we're trying to do a coordinated series with the senior group Bible studies, which means that I don't have to talk about all this, right? There's a small group that's going to keep on talking about it. And if you're not part of a senior group and you're a senior student, sign up for one. Uh, that's what the tear-off bit's all about. Fill in your names so that you can actually tick it and be part of it. If you're a first-year student and you're in a first-year small group, well, grab a senior student so that you can keep on talking about this. It really is important to fill out these things. Um, uh, just a further add, right? Like, it, it really helps. The reason why we want to follow, uh, we want people to fill in these things is so that we can follow up newcomers well. And you know what it's like when, when you come into a room and you fill these things in and you're the only one that does it. It's just really hard. So we get everyone to fill it in. It just makes it easy for everyone to fill it in. So I want to make it as a reflex action. When you come into public meetings, grab that and write it out, fill it in. And if you've been here thousands of times, just write your name and tick the box on an EU regular. That really helps us in, in doing that and caring for people. Uh, and, and the other thing that it does is that it, it's, it's, it's a helpful thing uh, for, for us to hear, hear feedback from you. Uh, one of the problems about public meetings is that it's, it's often one way. Uh, we talk, you listen, and that's it. We actually like to hear that, and we like to hear what's going on. And if you're worried about missing the chapter 1 of Titus, don't worry. Just write on the comments there, I need a Bible, and I'm sure Richard Glover will get you one. Um, but there are different marks there of, of what an elder is all about. Uh, I'll just hit on a few so that it just gives you some room for discussion when it comes to your small groups. So the first one there is about being blameless. Uh, that's all about reputation, being above reproach. Not being perfect, but have a reputation that's above reproach. I think Christian leaders, Christian ministers, Christian elders want to keep an, a, a reputation for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, sometimes a reputation that they might be, I don't know, good at sports or trendy or something. But the reputation to really care about is a reputation that's above reproach. Uh, let's hit on another one. It says being a husband of but one wife. I don't think that means that you need to be married. I don't think that it means... It, I think it actually means to be monogamous, to be faithful, uh, to have a more literal translation, to be a, a one-woman kind of guy. Why is that? Because we want faithful ministers who will be faithful in their teaching. We want faithful elders who will be faithful in their task. Another one, just that can always cause a little bit of confusion, children who believe and are, and are obedient. I think it's a bit of a, a problem in the translation in NIV. Uh, you can do it. But I think faithful children is probably a better translation rather than children who believe. Uh, that is, you manage your household well. Uh, you have children who are faithful, who, 
who are being the, the house is well looked after. Because how you behave privately in your home actually shows on the outside eventually. Uh, in my many years of student work, it's often the things I say as, as um, uh, students ask about whether they should go out with anybody. And, and one of the things, my sagely advice that I often say is, look, don't, don't just get to know them going out on dates, right? Because when you go on dates, people get a chance to prepare and dolly up and you know, act a certain way and stuff like that. You know that's true, right? The best way to actually get to know someone is to see them in their home environment. Because the way that they treat their parents and their brothers and sisters is a way that they're going to treat you in 10 years' time, right? It's just true. And, and so, as you look at these elders, it's just important to, to see what they're like in their home life. Uh, another one is the word hospitable. See, I always thought when I was a student and reading this passage, I always used to go, right, when I own my own house and I've got my own place, then I can be hospitable. Because then I can have dinner parties and invite people over and all that sort of stuff. That's not what that word means, actually. Hospitable is being a lover of strangers. That is, you can be hospitable now. As you look after strangers who come to public meetings, who come into your groups, small groups, as you welcome the outsider, as you welcome the stranger, as you look after them and care for them. Anyway, you'll have a good time looking at that during your senior small groups. And we're not going to go through all of them because we just don't have time. Uh, it's actually contrasted with another group of people, uh, the rebellious people, they're called. And once again, I think you can sort them out in terms of uh, character in, in their behaviour and also doctrinal things. Uh, and the, the character things are, are terrible there. I don't know where you actually read them and, and realise the sort of things that it says. And it says things like, uh, they're people who are rebellious, not submissive in character which is a key Christian value, by the way, they're money growers. You see that in verse 11. They're, they're doing it for dishonest gain. They're corrupting their minds and conscience in verse 15. They act in a way which denies the God they claim to know in verse 16. Then you get that list of detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That sounds bad. But the behaviour melds with what they like, theologically, with their doctrine. They're known as liars. It's terrible. I, I hope you don't have any relatives coming from Crete. But, you know, they were so well known back in those days that to be a Cretan was to lie. Much like to Corinthianise back in those days means to be sexually immoral. And we sort of get that, don't we? Sort of like, you know, you, you call a friend a Philistine, doesn't mean that they come from Philistia, just means that they're uncouth and they don't have any social graces or something. Um, but that's the sort of people that they like. And it's terrible when you've got false teachers because of the consequence. Have a look at the consequence in verse 11. Because they're ruining whole households. Now, I, I don't know whether you watch Four Corners. Uh, you can do it with iView now and, and just see past episodes and stuff like that. Four Corners is a show that, that's full of exposés on cults and stuff like that. And I think recently they did one on Scientology. Last year they had a few on different cults around the place. And the way that cults, false teachers, people who are corrupt and evil, destroying household, it's terrible. When children are set against parents and separated and they're not allowed contact, and the pain and the struggle and the tears that come across, it's awful. Uh, back in the 80s when I was a student here at Sydney University, there was a group here called the Sydney Church of Christ, uh, who was a cult who used to invite people 
for Bible studies. Sounds very innocuous. But then slowly, slowly, they told them to move out of home, to cease contact with their parents or any other social supports, keep them so busy that they don't have time to think for themselves so that they're fed with all sorts of false knowledge and false teaching. And slowly and slowly and slowly, households are ruined. The consequences are terrible. But I think it's more than just consequences, actually. It's actually got to do with the whole basis of Christian thinking. It's actually got to do with the Christian theology of revelation. The word revelation just means uncovering. Okay, big deal. Well, what has that got to do with anything? Well, if you understand Revelation well, you understand why this whole thing is so important and why we need true teachers who are of certain character so that the truth is transmitted from one generation to the next. If you understand Revelation well, you get it. Because what are some of the alternatives to knowing God if it's not by Revelation? Well, one of them is rationalism. To think up God, to think up the idea Okay, here's your hypothesis about what God is like. Given this, this is what my hypothesis is, by logical deduction, this is what God ought to be. So sit in the quiet corner of the room and you can think up what God is like. Rationally, deductively, clearly. Another alternative is empiricism, um, which is all about experimentation. Right? So you can set up experiments. Uh, you can set up a null hypothesis, then you can set up another hypothesis. If God exists, he'll answer my prayer. So I'll pray. If he doesn't answer it, then there's no God. You, know, you can do all sorts of stuff like that. that. That's an alternative in knowing God. Or by intuition. Or uh, and what comes inside and, and mysticism. That sort of stuff. You know, you just sit in your lotus position and say your mantra and then somehow your feelings of what God is like comes to you. But they're radically different to the Christian idea of revelation. All these three things, it's about mankind reaching up to God, working out what God is like. Revelation is God saying, this is who I am. This is how you know. The whole basis of this whole book actually are in those first three verses. It's, it's a gospel chain reaction. One thing happened after the next. Have a look at that with me, will you? Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. Really densely packed sentences. Let me take it apart for you a little bit at a time. It starts off with Paul. Paul, who's known as a servant of God. In the Old Testament, certain people, certain great ones in the Old Testament are known as servants of God. Uh, you get people like Moses, you get people like Joshua, you get people like David, who are known as servants of God. Now, the emphasis there isn't on the word servant, but the little phrase of God, actually. The importance of them being servants is not just servants, but servants of God, that God serves. Paul's making a huge claim here. That he's a great one, like the Old Testament's uh, great ones. And he's an apostle, ambassador, a sent one by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now what's his purpose? Old Testament servants were for all sorts of different purposes. Moses, his purpose, he was a servant of God, to lead the Israelites out of slavery <coughs> and to give them the law. But Joshua's servanthood 
was to lead the Israelites into the Promised Land and to destroy the Canaanites. At David's servanthood, he was a servant of God to rule over God's people with justice and righteousness. Paul's service here is a servant of God to bring God's elect, God's chosen people to faith, to faith in God and to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, those two things aren't separate, I don't think. But that's what Paul is a servant of God too. And notice there, it leads to godliness. It's knowledge that's not just titillating the mind and stays there. It's not trivia that you bring out on the next pub trivia night. It's knowledge that leads to godliness. That's why we want leaders who are like that. This letter wasn't just written to Titus himself. If you read right at the last verse of Titus, Paul says, grace be to you all. As Titus was reading this, there's people all eavesdropping. It's so that we can know what the shape of godliness looks like in our leaders. But also this godliness isn't just for leaders as though they're an exclusive bunch. We want godly leaders because that's what we want all Christians to be like. We, we want to lead people not just to a set of doctrines to pass a celestial exam when we die or something like that. No, we are leading people to a life. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's about godliness. And this truth leads to changed lives. Some knowledge does that, doesn't it? Some knowledge isn't just stuff that you file away. I think I've used this illustration before, but imagine if I said there's a bomb in this building that's going to blow up the whole building, and it's going to go off in one minute. Now, that's not something that you just saw away and go, great, I remember that talk that Michael had in times ago, bomb in Law 101, it's going to go off in, oh, whoops, you won't be around to remember it, actually. When you hear that bit of news, if it's true, if you believe it, you would actually pack up your books and walk out in a nice orderly way. <laughs> it's just truth that does something. It's truth that leads to godliness. And it rests on something. It rests on the hope of eternal life. That faith and knowledge, that godliness, is based on hope. Christians believe that there's more to life than this life. That there's more to life after death. There's something else. And hope drives you. You know that's true. You guys here at Sydney University, you're hoping that you're going to get this piece of paper a little bit bigger than A4, right, uh, in a few years' time. And you're willing to do all sorts of stuff based on that promise. Uh, by the way, don't leave your, your, your little piece of paper, your, your degree paper, in the plastic sleeve that they give it into you. That's what I've done. And the black lettering is stuck to the back of the sleeve. And when I open it now, I just get this blank sheet of paper. Don't do that, right? But you're willing to do all sorts of stuff for that piece of paper. You're willing to stay up all night to write words on, on computers. And you're willing to give up time to sit exams and sometimes not go to parties so you can study and... You're willing to put yourself all through all sorts of things for that promise. The promise of a degree. This promise is huge. This promise is about eternal life. It should change you. It should dominate your windscreen of your life. That changes you. And it's based on a promise that's been made by someone. Now, Michael Spence might be able to promise you a degree. I don't think he can promise you eternal life, actually. The guy who can actually make sure that promise is God, the unlying God that we got there in verses 1 to 3. And you'll see, how do we know this promise? 
would come round to the full circle, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me, Paul, by the command of God our Saviour. It's a reason why we're having these wonderful events in second semester, actually. It's so that we can make this truth known to all people, to the whole campus. It's a way that we know how to keep the, the Christianity of the apostles to the Christianity today. Because God is a God who's spoken, who's revealed himself, then it's really important to have teachers, elders, who live out the changed life, who actually hold firm and trusted teaching and pass it on faithfully. That's really important. Because, you know, if God really did reveal himself by rationalism, if it's, if it's by rationalism that we get to know God, then we don't need teachers, really. We just need clever people who can think things up well. If it's by empiricism that we know God, then we don't need teachers. We just need good scientists and good experimenters who can set up the right experiment to work out God. And if it's by intuition that we not, don't need teachers, we just need good gurus, good mystics who can lead us to God. But the way that we know God and the way that we can make sure that the apostolic Christianity is the same as today is because God has revealed himself and at the appropriate time we have preachers of God's word who hold firm to his teaching, who will teach it faithfully. Now what's our application? Well, as we said earlier, this was written not just to Titus but to all of us. And so it becomes a great greed when we think of leaders in our churches or our ministries that we're involved with, as we see EU. Those list of qualities we ought to think about. We, we ought to think about, hey, have we got the right people leading us? Are they the sort of people who hold firm to the teaching, who will teach it faithfully? Have we got people who live out that life? Is that what we have? But it takes us in another direction, I think. Because if these qualities aren't just for teachers but for us, and we know that the truth leads to godliness, it becomes a checklist for us to examine our own lives as well. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to look at the content of that godly life next week. And then the week after, we're going to look at the basis of that godly life. But for now, it's a great grid for you to keep on remembering. And remembering that God is a God who revealed himself. And if God is a God who revealed himself truthfully, then we must have elders, leaders, teachers who live out that life and who hold firmly to that revelation and pass it on in faith. Let's pray together. Um, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who's not silent, but you're a God who's spoken and who have revealed yourself. Uh, Father, we pray that we would find elders and leaders amongst us who will hold firm to that teaching and pass it on faithfully. And Father, we pray for us, Father, that we would mould our lives to be like things of the elders as well. Because Father, we know that the truth doesn't stay in itself but the truth leads to godliness. And we pray this for Jesus' sake.